0: Not long ago, we were watching the movie Aladdin with our kids, and we asked them this question. If you were in Aladdin's position, you were granted three wishes. What would you wish for? That's a neat little exercise, no matter how old you are, kid or adult, because it really gets to the heart of the things we desire. What do we really want? Uh, Would I wish only for things that benefit me? Would I wish for the good of others? That's a fanciful question, I know, but it gives insight into the things that we value most. Well, today, we're going to talk about prayer. And of course, prayer is not at all like making wishes to a genie. But it's true that how we pray, what we pray for, gives insight into our hearts, the things that we really value, the things we really desire, how we really view God. So think about it like this. If I only ever pray for things I want or need, if that's all I ever pray, I I never come to God and pray unless there's something I need. Wouldn't that reveal my heart? That perhaps I do see God more as a genie and not as a heavenly father. Uh, I'm not praying to commune with God, to worship him, to praise him and thank him. I'm only seeking something he might give me. And in that case, what is it that I really want? Well, I don't want God himself so much as I want something from him. God would be a means to some other end for me. Now, I don't think any of us consciously do that, but we can drift into it. I think what usually happens is we, we just naturally drift into a way of thinking about God primarily as the Lord of circumstances. And so when we pray, we pray mostly about circumstances. I'll give you an example. Because this is how I am prone to pray. This is how we often teach our children to pray. Uh, God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your love. Thank you for this meal. Uh, Please heal those who are sick. Please protect us. Please keep us safe. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, is that a bad prayer? No. There's nothing wrong with that prayer. We're thanking God. We're asking God to take care of us, to do the things that only God ultimately can do. We're praying in Jesus name, right? Those are all wonderful things. Don't don't hear me dismiss that as if that's some sort of bad prayer. It's a wonderful prayer, but in that kind of prayer, aren't we mainly concerned with circumstances? God as provider, protector, healer. Well, yes, God is those things. The scripture assures us over and again that God is provider, protector, and healer. Yes, but he's more than that. He's so much more. And that's why I think it's such a gift when we study the prayers that are in Scripture, when we actually watch people pray and see the record of their prayers in the Bible. Uh, That's one of those things that comes up quite often, actually, Uh, all throughout the scripture. We have an entire book dedicated to it called the Psalms. We've got 150 prayers, basically, recorded for us to read and pray along with. We even see Jesus himself pray on multiple occasions. The longest prayer in the Bible is a prayer that Jesus prayed right in the middle of the book of John. Well, here in Philippians 1, we get an insight into how Paul prayed. And Paul does us a tremendous favor He told us, we saw it last week, at the beginning of the book of Philippians, Paul says, I pray for you, the church in Philippi. Well, now, today, we actually get to see the content of his prayer. And here's something interesting about Paul. It's going to be true today, but it's true really in all of his letters. Paul rarely prayed about circumstances, at least in the records that we have. Paul rarely prayed for a change in circumstances. When Paul prayed, especially when he prayed for the churches, the churches in Philippi and Ephesus and Corinth and Rome and so on, Paul did not pray better circumstances for them. Paul prayed for the deep, eternal work of God in them. And so today we're going to look at Paul's prayer. It's a very short prayer. It's only three verses. And we're going to study the content of the prayer, but I hope also that we'll be encouraged to start praying this way more and more. By all means, we should be praying about our circumstances. Jesus himself told us to do that in the Sermon on the Mount. He told us, pray for your circumstances. Give us this day our daily bread. Oh my goodness. Don't neglect those kinds of prayers. But we shouldn't stop with those kinds of prayers. And so I want to be encouraged today, and I want you to be encouraged as we look at how Paul prays for the church, and by extension, how Paul prays for you and me. Uh, A deeper prayer for God's work in us, not just God's work for us. Look with me at Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Paul's words, he says, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. I told you that was short. Oh, but it's so very rich. So to help us understand this prayer, we need to reflect on one of the verses we looked at last week, one of our key verses, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. This is a verse I encouraged us to memorize, where Paul says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, I am sure of something, that God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the return of Christ. Now, in verse 9, just a few verses later, Paul is praying for the realization of that good work. Paul is praying that the good work of God in you would manifest itself in how you feel, and how you think, and how you speak, and how you live. Paul is praying that the Philippians would press in and participate in the good work of God in them. And so we can think about it like this. If if Paul were to come to us and say, yes, God started a good work in you. And yes, God is going to be the one to finish that good work. We might ask the question, well, then what am I supposed to do? And here's Paul's answer. This is not some mechanical thing. God does to you. This is a work God does in you. And so you get to live out what God is doing in you. And that's the content of this prayer. Each verse gives us something to hold on to. So look with me at verse 9. I pray that your love may abound still more and more. It's clear, if we read through Philippians, it's clear that the church in Philippi was a very loving church. Church. They were already loving. They were one of the only churches that sent money to Paul to help meet his needs when he was in prison. And yet, Paul prays that their love would grow, abound still more and more. He doesn't want them to be content with how loving they are today. He wants their love to grow and overflow. Uh, You know, when you're pouring a Coke over a glass of ice. I'm sure we've all done this. It's an art form. You have to learn how. Because if you pour all of that Coke in at once, what happens? The fizz overflows. You end up with a huge mess. What you've got to do, you've got to pour in about a third of the glass first, and then the fizz rate rises to the top. You've got to let it die down, then you've got to pour in a little more, and you've got to go, uh, you know, small pours at a time until you get to the top. Okay, well, when Paul talks about Christian love, do we see what he's saying? Don't pour a little bit in and hold the rest back. Pour it all out. Let it overflow. Don't hold your love back. Don't go around making judgments about who you think deserves your love versus the people who don't. Don't just love people who who can offer you something in return, right? Paul says, no, abound in love more and more and more. Pour it all out and don't worry about the mess. That's how we ought to view our love, that we're not reserving it, that we're not holding back, but that we're loving more and more and more and more. Now, that's a great thing for Paul to pray. That's a great thing that we should all pray for ourselves. But you notice in verse 9, there's a certain kind of love Paul's praying about here. I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Now, what does that mean? Uh, We spoke about this last week, how in the scripture we are given the command to love, yes. But we're also given the qualities of the love God desires for us. It's not just love as we define it, it's love as God defines it. So one of the great love commands is love your neighbor as yourself, right? Well, if, if, if the scripture simply said, Kyle, love your neighbor, well, then I get to decide what that love looks like. And frankly, in most cases, I'm going to lower the bar on that love because true love is costly, it's difficult, it's messy, it's sacrificial, it's time-consuming. But the Bible doesn't give me that option. The Bible says, Kyle, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And that raises the bar considerably because I love me. We all do. Well, then Jesus tells his disciples in John 13, love one another even as I have loved you. And so again, we're getting a quality of love. He doesn't leave it up to our own definition. Jesus gives the definition. And it's meant to change our perception of what love looks like. Love is something ultimately that comes from God. God is love, the scripture tells us. And so our love ought to be dictated, driven, defined by God. Well, here in Philippians 1, very much the same thing. We're told to love one another, but then we're given the quality with real knowledge and all discernment. Basically, here's what I think Paul is saying. Let your love be guided by a deeper knowledge of God. And let your love be guided by the true wisdom of God. Uh, Paul Paul is placing love into a moral category here. It's not just a sentimental feeling. It's not just something that I get to kind of create within my heart as to how I choose to feel about certain people. No, it's a moral category, meaning this is a behavior. Love is a behavior that reflects the character of God. I think that's what Paul's getting at. So I pray that your love will grow as your knowledge of God grows, as you discern God's will in all knowledge and discernment. The more we press into the Lord, the more we press into God's word, the more our love Takes shape around it, like a supporting structure for a building. We may not see the structure itself. We see the bricks, we see the windows, we see uh, the beauty of the finished product, but that finished product only exists because of the steel beams that are reinforcing it, that are holding it together. And I think that's what Paul is getting at here, that your love takes on the character of God in knowledge, in wisdom, in discernment. The more you know God, the more godly our love becomes. See, there is a kind of love that's not just a sentimental feeling. It actually reflects who God is. And it does good. It's godly. It's not just sentimental Uh, Something that if if you want to know about love, you know, the, the place to turn, of course, in the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 13, we hear it often at weddings because it's so rich and wonderful. It's all about love. But Paul makes some profound statements in 1 Corinthians 13. And here's one of them. I think it reflects what he's praying in Philippians 1. Remember what Paul says? He says, love does not delight in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Love rejoices in the truth the truth of God and i think this is the the flavor of his prayer in verse 9 that there's a christ shape to our love that that pursues others to love others in a way that honors god and lives for his glory and we see i think a continuation of this in verse 10 we see an outcome that if we'll abound in love more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, verse 10 says, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Uh, One commentator that I read puts it like this. Paul is saying right here, we ought to live our future life here in the present. There's coming a day when Jesus Christ will present us blameless before him. That's what Paul continues to reference when he talks about the day of Christ. We are Christians because we have trusted in the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone, and therefore one day we will stand faultless before his throne. Well, if that's true, if that's our future promise, then Paul is praying for the here and now. Today, Paul says, Live in light of that. If if Jesus is going to present you blameless before himself on the last day, then pursue blamelessness now. Pursue Christ. Pursue his righteousness with all your hearts in your daily life today. Repent of sin. Seek holiness today. Don't wait for that day as if this is only something God is going to do to you. Embrace this as a work God is doing in you, right? May we approve what is excellent, Paul says, which means we wisely seek out and choose God's best. Uh, Y'all, wisdom requires that we make a lot of decisions in life where there are not clear, black and white, right and wrong. Uh, It's not always that simple. Life requires a great deal of wisdom. Sometimes life requires choosing between better and best. And so Paul is saying, if our love is growing in real knowledge and all discernment, then we can approve what is excellent. We can always be seeking and doing what is best in every circumstance, what truly honors God and not just what we feel like doing. Because our heart's desire, remember, that's, that's verse 10, is to stand sincere and blameless in the day of Christ. Y'all, none of us will ever be perfect on our own. And I hope that you understand that, that we're never, when, when we see sincere and blameless in verse 10, Paul has no illusion that you and I are going to achieve perfection on this side of heaven. But we should desire to stand before Jesus on the last day, having done everything we could to honor him, praise him, please him, and obey him. Now, we're going to get to this eventually in in the coming weeks, but this is something, actually, that Paul says about his own life. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, I do not consider myself as having arrived. I'm not perfect, but I press on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I want to be sincere and blameless in the day of Christ. I want to approve all that is excellent. I want my life to reflect love and wisdom and godliness. And so one way to think about this prayer in verse 10, we can ask a question. Am I evaluating my life according to the love of God, according to the word of God? Am I seeking what is best, not just good enough? But am I seeking truly to do what is pleasing to God in every circumstance? Now, I know that's an incredibly high bar. I know if we parse out all of our uh, activities and our words and our thoughts and our intentions that we're going to find ourselves falling short. I know that. But Paul is praying. He's aspiring to something in prayer that we ought to aspire to. That in everything that makes up my life, both internally and externally, I want to be sincere and blameless before Christ. Uh, This is, again, this is an echo of verse 6. I'm sure that God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So here's the question. The question is not, is God doing something good in me? Is God going to finish that good work? We're already sure of that. We know that. So now the question is, am I passionately committed to the good work of God in my life? Am I content to say, well, God will just accomplish it for me. He'll just do it to me. That's not how Paul frames it. No, God is doing it in me. Am I passionately committed to what God is doing? That's a great question for us to ask and sincerely look in the mirror and see how we're doing. Well, this prayer ends with a, it's a conclusion of Paul's thought. So I want us to look at the whole prayer again, all together, verses 9 through 11. It's short enough that we can do it almost in one breath. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Now that's a prayer, isn't it? That you and I would be found on the last day filled, with the fruit of righteousness. Uh, this last verse, verse 11, is similar to verse 10 in a way. Uh, it's got a double meaning. Remember, we just talked about this in verse 10. Paul prays that we would be blameless in the day of Christ. Here he prays that we'd be filled with righteousness through Jesus Christ. Well, in both cases, our blamelessness and our righteousness the ultimate fulfillment of those things is Jesus. Jesus makes us blameless. Uh, Jesus is our righteousness. We don't find those things outside of him. But what Paul is praying, he's not just praying for what God will do for us. He's praying for the work of God in us. And so he's praying that we ourselves would live out this new reality. So here we are, he says, seeking to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. That's what he's asking for. That we are to desire the good fruit that Jesus produces in real life, in the here and now. Now, There's a famous list of qualities that Paul gives us in the book of Galatians. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. Nine qualities that the Spirit of God himself produces in the life of a Christian. And he gives them to us Uh, just as a bare list. He doesn't explain them. He doesn't give commentary. He just says love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the new realities of the the heart that are meant to be ever-increasing as we know and grow in Jesus. Now, I'll give a confession here, and I'm not ashamed to admit it. Maybe I should be. I've been a Christian over 20 years, and every single time I look at the fruit of the Spirit, I feel very small. I mean, I I don't, and I I realize I'm exaggerating, I guess, but I I don't feel like I've grown in any of them at all. When I think about it, am I really as loving as I should be? Am I as kind and patient and self-controlled as I ought to be? And the answer is always no, and I know that you can relate to that. Not to say that we haven't grown. I'm sure that you have. I'm sure that I have. But we feel very small when we when we hold ourselves up to the one who exemplifies these gifts, these qualities, Jesus Christ. And man, am I am I loving in the way I ought to be? I, I just know I'm not. But here's my encouragement. Paul's not praying this to put us down. Oh no, this this is a this is a a joyful thing. We have to consider the source. Quite literally, we have to consider the source. Remember what Paul says in verse 11. He tells us that the fruit of righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. Not through us, not of our own doing and making, but through Jesus. Jesus himself told us this before Paul ever did. Uh, very notable scripture in John chapter 15. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and by extension, he's talking to us today. And Jesus says, abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. To abide means to remain in, to be connected to, to be fused together with something or someone, so much so that you share the life of that thing or that person. In this case, Jesus compares us to a branch and a vine. That's the picture he paints. A branch connected to sharing the life of the vine. The branch has life. The branch bears fruit because it's connected to the source. It's connected to the vine. That's where the life originates. And so Jesus says, when you abide in me and I in you, you bear much fruit. You just will. You don't have to grit your teeth and produce it on your own. The life of the vine will bring that fruit about. Apart from me, Jesus says, nothing. Apart from me, nothing. Nothing good. Nothing pleasing to God. But in me, great fruitfulness. That's why Paul calls it in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit, the produce of the Spirit. Apart from the Spirit, there is no fruit. He's not telling us to grit our teeth and try to be more loving. He's saying that when we abide in Christ, when we walk by the Spirit, we will live a life of fruitfulness. And so we're getting, I hope, a clearer sense of what Paul is praying for the church. For you to be filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. He's praying for us to have such faith in Christ, such wholehearted devotion and dependence, uh, such joyful and loving obedience that the fruit of righteousness is filled in us, that we're overflowing with this fruit. And so let, let me give us a point to drive home in all of this. Y'all, the ultimate goal is not our fruitfulness. Um, as if at the end of each day, we've got nine check boxes love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and we can check off all that we've succeeded in today in bearing good fruit. Um, That's not our ultimate aim in this. The ultimate aim is Jesus. He is our trust. He's our delight. He is our Lord and our Savior. And so we have to resist the urge of always making this idea about us. How much fruit am I bearing? We don't always know the answer to that. And of course, we may not see all the good work that God is doing in our lives. We certainly won't see it in in any given moment. And so the goal can't just be that we measure our own fruitfulness according to our own standards. The goal is what Jesus told us to do. He said, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. So the focus is not on the fruit so much as the focus is on Jesus. It's on Jesus. The fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, Now, I want us to to close with an important reminder here. It's very easy for me to look at this scripture and see Paul giving me commands. It just, that's my nature. I'm looking for commands. I'm looking for the Bible always to just tell me what to do. But that's, and, and commands will come, yes, but that's not what's happening in verses 9, 10, and 11. This is a prayer. It's not a list of commands. It's a prayer. Paul is not really talking to the Philippians. He's sharing the content of what he's asking God to do on their behalf, in them and through them. So Paul is aspiring to something here. He's asking God to do something great in their life and in ours. And that's why, listen, what Paul's concern primarily in Philippians 1, it's not just good spiritual fruit for the Philippians. That's not his main ultimate aim for them that they would just do good things and do them more. Paul's ultimate aim is at the end of the prayer. Verse 11, that all these things he prays to the praise and glory of God, all these things he's asking for, have their ultimate end, the finish line is, to the praise of God's glory. He's not asking for the Philippians to clean up their act and be better Christians merely as if somehow that happens in a vacuum. And that's, that's the goal of the, the Christian life, is just to be better each day. No, he's saying the ultimate goal is the glory and the praise of our heavenly Father. So our, listen, our abounding in love, the increase in knowledge and discernment that defines that love, our approval of what is excellent, our being filled with the fruit of righteousness, it all comes through Jesus to the praise and glory of God. And y'all, there is nothing in all existence, there is nothing more eternally magnificent than the glory of God. There's no higher aim. I don't care how you can, you can scour the earth and all philosophies and religions. You can look under every rock in existence. You will never find anything better, more worthy, more worthwhile than to live your life for the glory of God, to experience in full, the glory of God. And that is the ultimate goal. That's the ultimate promise. There's nothing better God can give you for all eternity than for you to live face-to-face in the presence of his glory. And so it's fitting that that's the, the aim of Paul's prayer. That's what he wants for us to experience, both in the here and now and in the life to come. And if we believe that, if we, if we make that our aim, then of course it's going to change not only how we pray, but how we live how we think, how we decide. Because God's glory is, for us, the best thing there is. There's nothing worth having more. And so this is a reason I think we ought to pray, like Paul prays, that our very existence is to the praise of the glory of God, the sending of Jesus into the world for our salvation. That's for the glory of God, too. The abounding work in us that Jesus is producing day by day, it's to the glory and praise of God. And so as we begin to pray more like Paul, then we begin to see God as something bigger than perhaps we have made him out to be. We're not only praying to God as provider, protector, healer. We're praying to God as the one who is the center of all things, the aim and goal of life, the glory of God forever. That is what we're seeing, desiring, aiming for. See, that's when Jesus told us how to pray. You remember how he starts? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The prayer starts with the glory and the magnificence and the ultimate nature of God. He is everything. And before we ask for anything, we're acknowledging that we're praying to the God to whom belongs all praise and glory forever. And so here's, here's my encouragement as we close. I'm not dismissing prayer for circumstances. Please don't hear me say that. We should pray for circumstances. We're commanded to pray for circumstances. God is provider, protector, healer, and so on. Um, but let's not limit prayer to those things. Because if we do, we end up missing something like we see in Philippians 1, 9 through 11. We potentially miss the the work that God is doing in us, which is ultimately greater, it's more lasting, more eternal, more fruitful, than what God is going to do for us in the here and now. And so we ought to learn more and more to pray like Paul prays, in addition to praying for the rest. So here's my encouragement. Take time this week, every day, to pray specifically Philippians 1, 9 through 11. Word for word. It's Paul's prayer. It's not plagiarism for us to pray it to. I think it's good and right. I think it would honor God for us to pray the exact words. To pray these words for ourselves, for our family, for our church. To pray these things for others that we know and love. You can even insert specific names in when Paul uses the word your You can put the name of your spouse, the name of your children, the name of of those that you want to come to to God on behalf of. Put their names in that prayer and pray for them directly, specifically for these things. And perhaps as we pray, God will answer. God will bring about an abounding love and a certain kind of love that that is fitting to the character of God and not just our own. Feelings, that we will grow in our approval of what is excellent, that we will grow in wisdom, that we will be sincere and blameless, that as we pray these things, God delights to answer them. These are the prayers of Scripture. But also that our own hearts might grow in the process, that I might become a prayer more like the Apostle Paul, seeking out not only the good things God might do for me, for us but also the things that God is doing in us and by his grace, all that he might do through us as his beloved children. And so I want to pray that right now as we close our time together. Would you join with me? Father, give us the grace this morning to broaden our understanding of and our perspective on prayer. Lord, thank you for your provision and protection and healing. Thank you, Lord, for the ways that you are sovereignly and intimately concerned with our circumstances. Lord, you know the numbers of every hair on our head. Um, Lord, you know what we need before we even ask for it. Thank you, Lord, that you are over our circumstances. And Lord, thank you for giving us the privilege of asking for what we need. But Lord, I pray also that you would enlarge our our understanding and perspective, that when we come to you, Lord, we are coming to you as those who have a great work ongoing in us and in your church, and therefore, Lord, we can pray for things that we may not feel like are very tangible, but are so absolutely significant and eternally magnificent. And so, Lord, I pray this right now for Harvest Church and for anyone who may be watching. I pray, Lord, that our love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that we may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of you, God. Father, produce in us, through us, divine love, knowledge, wisdom, sincerity, purity, and righteous fruit. And Lord, let it all be to your glory. Thank you, Father, that you are not a genie who grants wishes, here to serve our whims, to give us the things that we want, but that you are the everlasting Father who achieves your good and perfect will in our lives. And that, Lord, what you have for us, what you've given to us, what you've promised to do, exceeds all imagination. There's nothing we could conjure up in our hearts that even comes close to living in your eternal glory, face to face with you forever. Thank you, Lord, that that is our hope and that we have received that hope by faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, let us seek him, love him with everything we have, and may you do your good work in us always. In Christ's precious name we ask it. Amen.